Welcome to the Short Fuse podcast, produced by Elizabeth Howard and distributed by the Arts Fuse, the online journal of arts commentary and criticism. Our conversations are with artists, writers, musicians, and others whose work reveals our communities through their lens and stirs us to seek change. James Baldwin said, artists are here to disturb the peace. I'm Elizabeth Howard, your host. In July, when I first read about the devastating floods that hit eastern Kentucky, I began to think about Appalachia. It was reported that at least 39 people died and entire small communities were forced from their homes. The New York Times, in an article that appeared on August 2nd, reported that one round of rainstorms after another blew through eastern Kentucky on Monday, deepening the misery of an already desperate region. Floodwaters again swallowed the roads that had recently opened to allow emergency workers to scour the remote hills and valleys for survivors. Parts of Appalachia include some of the poorest counties in the country. And then the rain stopped and the reporting stopped. After all, there's Ukraine, politics, Donald Trump, and climate crises across the globe. I thought about poetry and storytelling and mountain life. In this episode of the Short Fuse podcast, I'm talking with Dr. Amy Clark, one of the editors of Talking Appalachian, Voice, Identity, and Community, published by the University Press of Kentucky in 2013, and Jane Moore Waldrop, author of Drowned Town, also published by the University Press of Kentucky in 2021. I want to thank Jackie Wilson, the marketing manager at the press. She's guided my reading and provided me with a shelf of books. I am grateful. Amy and Jane, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Amy, perhaps you can describe for us Appalachia geographically. And then in the introduction to the book you edited, you write that Jeff Biggers describes four images of Appalachia, pristine, backwater, Anglo-Saxon, and pitiful. Perhaps you can help us through the landscape and these descriptions. I always think of Appalachia in the plural. And when I talk about Appalachia, I talk about it in the plural because there are many Appalachias, depending on who you talk to. But the map that is most widely used probably to describe the region is the federal map. It's the one you see at the Appalachian Regional Commission website. It's the map that stretches all the way, I think, all the way up into New York and all the way down into Mississippi. And so that map is tied to politics. It follows the Appalachian mountain chain. But if, you, if you're a representative in that region and you want federal dollars, right, you're going to pull those boundaries as far as you can, right, into your district. So I don't think we necessarily recognize cultural Appalachia as extending that far north and that far deep south because and you probably wouldn't find many people who would identify as Appalachian that far north and that far deep south. Oh and I forgot to mention that east to west you know it includes all of West Virginia and then you have Ohio and then you have the states like Virginia and North Carolina and Tennessee and and the other southern states that it's sort of, it's halfway through. So 
it's it's sort of a complicated place. You have that federal map and then you have the cultural map, which doesn't have specified boundaries, right? Because you have Northern Appalachia, Central Appalachia and Southern Appalachia and all are very different. And yet they have their similarities. You know, when we talk about dialects, we have similar dialect variations in deep central Appalachia compared to Pittsburgh, which is also in Appalachia. We share similarities there, and yet we're so different in many ways. So it is a complicated, and I think that adds to images of Appalachia that Jeff Biggers describes. I think a lot of the way that mainstream America thinks of us has been defined by politics. It has been defined by the general media and the way that Appalachia has been portrayed over the years. I think that's the knee-jerk reaction people have to us. That's the image they have of us. It's what they think of when they hear our vernacular dialects. I think what, what writers like myself and Jane and the rest of us try to do is is portray that idea of cultural Appalachia, authentic Appalachia, which is still different depending on which part of Appalachia you're from. Jane, your main character, Margaret, in your wonderful novel, which I really loved, is from Louisville. It's now quite a city with boutique hotels. Well, my novel is based and set primarily in Western Kentucky and in Louisville. Because, you know, Kentucky is a very long state, (laughs) east to west. And I grew up in Paducah, which is in far west. But I come from a family of displaced Appalachians. So even though we geographically are not part of the Appalachian Regional Commission districts and map, I think culturally, my family was very Appalachian as far as language and family culture. My family left Pike County, Kentucky in the early 1950s during another downturn in that coal economy. Like so so many families left around that time. Most went north to work, though, in Ohio or Michigan. My family had uh, one family member who had already moved to Western Kentucky. So we went, they went in that direction. And I was the first person in my Moore family to be born outside of Appalachia for about 200 years. Mm. So I have that identity, yet I've never lived in Appalachia. So getting back to my novel, Western Kentucky has changed dramatically in the last 50 or 60 years, even the topography, the geography, due to major water and land projects that were created by the federal government. Kentucky Lake, Lake Barkley, and the Land Between the Lakes National Recreation Areas were all major sources of displacement and dislocation in Western Kentucky. Thousands of people were dislocated and and lost their homes. Many of them also generational homes for hundreds of years also. So that theme to me of loss of home is really important. I saw that yearning in my parents, even though they never moved back to the mountains, they always had this special yearning for home. And even though they built a good life and lived out the rest of their lives in Western Kentucky, they always considered the mountains their home. So I saw that yearning in them 
all of my life. And I heard the same type of yearning as I met with and did research for my novel in the people in Western Kentucky who were displaced due to these federal projects. The name of the book is Drowned Town because several very old river towns were flooded when the lakes were built and when the, the Tennessee River and the Cumberland River were dammed to form these lakes. So that loss of home theme is really important to me. Just go back for a moment to Bigger's description of how people think of Appalachians. And it's the dialect often. Amy, let me refer to James Baldwin's essay that he published in 1979 entitled, If Black English Isn't a Language, Then Tell Me What Is. As Baldwin writes, language is a political instrument, means, and proof of power. It is the most vivid and crucial key to identity. It reveals the private identity and connects one with or divorces one from the larger public or communal community. Your book, the essays in your book, have to do with dialect and voice and language. And that often, in much of the reading that I've done, when people would leave and go to Cincinnati or they'd go to Chicago or they might even go to Detroit, they were separated by their language, which was seen as backwater. So when we talk about language, it's a system of symbols. It's a system of encoded symbols. And we all use it for different reasons. But I think what people misunderstand is that standard American English is a dialect as well. It just happens to be the power dialect. It happens to be the one we teach. It happens to be the one used by news anchors. It happens to be the one that's institutionalized, right? So this is the one that we've decided upon as being the most clear and the one that what everyone should use. But unfortunately, vernacular voices or the voices of home, regional, ethnic dialects are misunderstood as attempts at standard English or these broken varieties of standard English, when in fact, they are systematic, encoded varieties of a language as well. And they're used by the speakers for very specific purposes. And it's it's strange to think that, you know, Lee Smith talks about in her essay how she empowers herself through her use of dialect. If she's buying a car, she'll turn it on. She'll turn it on in a really thick country voice so that she gets her way because she finds that that works with people. So it's both empowering, but it's also something that causes people to be marginalized because of those images of Appalachia that, that Biggers describes and the misunderstanding because most people don't understand the rich linguistic history of dialect varieties. They, they don't know that that ours is formed by migration patterns, by the English and the Scots-Irish and, and, and natives. They don't understand where it comes from. And so that contributes to the stigma as well. Jane, you didn't use dialect in your, in your novel. I think use of dialect is tricky. And what I usually try to do is look for word choices that may represent an area or, a, you know, a particular dialect, but not to caricature it, like in Western Kentucky, and I think probably in, in Appalachian language also, the use of K 
carrying, like I carried my son to school today. That's a word choice that reflects the dialect and, and documents it in a way, but it's not like the drop G or the, the dropped ING that might seem to caricature the language. So I'm careful in word choices, but I do think that you can make those decisions as a writer that still reflect the beauty and distinct voices of a region. Can you read a few graphs from the novel? One of the things that I have written about is this loss of home and the bitterness that is perhaps generational because of this loss of home. And then this passage that I am looking at, this character is not is an outsider to the area. She never had any personal loss in Western Kentucky. She knows this area and its stories and its history from her best friend, her lifelong best friend since when they met in college. They're very different people. She's grown to love this area too. But there's a different viewpoint in this outsider viewpoint for the people who actually experience this loss of home. For years, Margaret would listen to their stories, but she never understood the depth of their bitterness. She viewed the area with the eyes of a weekend visitor who arrived long after the dams were built, the towns were flooded, and the last resident moved out to make way for LBL, as they now called Land Between the Lakes. As a tourist, she didn't have to see beyond the scenery. After the government had decided what was needed in Western Kentucky and Tennessee, Margaret and others like her became beneficiaries of the actions. She swam in the lakes and biked the LBL trails without much reflection on who had been there before or what was sacrificed to provide this place for her, the weekend visitor. Privately, she applauded the successive decisions designed to transform the area into a destination. But she never told the Weatherfords how she felt. She didn't want to insult the people who had hosted her, accepted her, treated her like a daughter. She loved them so much that her younger self wondered if she should take up their bitterness and carry it as a sign for her loyalty to them. She had tried, but she found she couldn't sustain any meaningful level of regret that the lakes had been created. In its current form, the area was interwoven with her dearest memories. That's beautiful. Thank you. I was given the Foxfire books when they first came out, I think in 1967. And I, <laughs> I treasure my books and I've often wondered why I don't have my Foxfire books. <laughs> and when I looked up Foxfire recently, I learned that now there's a museum and a magazine and it really is a whole place that focuses on the trade and the crafts and the livelihood. Amy, you have set up a center for Appalachian studies at the University of Virginia at WISE. Perhaps you can describe that for us. The late Helen Lewis was the first to create Appalachian studies at then Clinch Valley College of the University of Virginia's College at WISE. And she just passed. So I want to take a moment to remember her because she was really the mother of Appalachian studies there. 
we wanted to create a place where we could celebrate and embrace the the scholarship of the Appalachian region, the programming of the Appalachian region. And so an Appalachian Studies minor emerged from that. And we had all of these surrounding colleges and universities that already had Appalachian Studies programs, and we just wanted to join our cohorts. Our Appalachian Studies minor pulls courses from all different subject areas. And so I have a course in Appalachian dialects. I have a course in the rhetoric of death of Appalachia. We have courses in Appalachian botany. We have courses from theater. We have courses in Appalachian history. We also have an introduction to Appalachia course for incoming students to introduce them to general Appalachian studies, but we've tried to assemble a multidisciplinary curriculum that covers just about every topic possible, and we rotate that from semester to semester. Of course, so much attention came to Appalachia when John F. Kennedy was running for president. He was the first one who sort of came to, what was it, West Virginia, and then Lyndon Johnson visited and the entire poverty program in the 60s was looking at Appalachia, but it's always been so complicated, hasn't it, about what what to do. That's what you were saying, Jane, writing about in your novel of whether to have tourism replacing something else, people who aren't part of the community at all and have not been and do not appreciate this culture. I tried to be as neutral as possible in showing both sides of these projects in Western Kentucky. And Western Kentucky is not the only part of of our state that has had these created lakes. TVA and the Corps of Engineers have built lakes and dams all over the country, particularly in the Southeast. But there are many, many communities across the country that have had this type of loss of home and place. But there is a legitimate public purpose in this. It's not just for tourism or the recreational aspects. You know, it's for flood control. It's for hydroelectric power. The early projects were part of the New Deal rural electrification program. Um, So there are many legitimate reasons for the public good. Mm -hmm. I think as I have looked into this more, I've always seen the benefit side and never really acknowledged the loss side. So I think that's what I came to see as a more mature person um, who has always loved skiing on the lakes. I've always, I'm one of those beneficiaries of the, the projects and the results of those projects. But I think Appalachia, far Western Kentucky, and many other rural communities have are looked upon in the same way. People don't understand rural communities. Not all people understand rural communities. And I think that learning more about the people who live there is very important for everybody. And that goes in both directions too. I think trying to understand people and different regions and different areas is really important and necessary. And I sometimes feel like we're at polar opposites at this point in our country's history and our civic life together that we don't give each other 
enough time to understand. I think it's often the government or the business leaders have the sense that they have a solution for poverty. (laughs) Some of these communities that I understand from what I read in July, there have been a number of floods in the 30s and the 50s. So what will happen to these people? I think what really drove me to think about doing this podcast is I, I saw on the news a mayor of a town saying completely flooded, just as we're seeing with Pakistan right now. And and she said, it's going to take us years or so to build this back. So then what happens to these, these people? And yet it disappears from the news. I was actually in Eastern Kentucky during the floods. I was on the faculty this year of the Appalachian Writers Workshop at the Hyman Settlement School. It was very close, and I felt privileged to not have had injury or damage where I was. I was also privileged to be able, when the water went down and the roads were cleared, to head back to my home in Lexington. Many people were not so lucky. Dislocation and loss of home is staggering right now in Eastern Kentucky. So I do worry about that as, you know, this theme of dislocation and climate diaspora, I believe, is going to be a steady drumbeat in the coming years for us. We're seeing flooding in, I believe it was Dallas about two weeks ago, and Mississippi, Jackson, Mississippi, in about uh, the last 10 days. These episodes are becoming very serious and routine almost as these weather weather patterns tend to hover over a community and provide this monsoonal rain that I think we have to, to reckon with on how we prevent these types of, of weather events that are so devastating to communities and to individuals. I noticed that there are 12 FEMA counties in eastern Kentucky from these floods that have been declared disaster areas. The last count that I found online was that 1,722 homes were lost completely and nearly 4,000 partial losses on homes. There's a huge cost to, to the people who live there. Like you mentioned earlier, 39 people died in the flooding. It's going to take years to rebuild the infrastructure and to replace these homes. So it it does need the continued attention. So I appreciate you being able to bring this topic up today. I, I think it's got to stay on the forefront because it's going to take a major effort to rebuild and not lose that population to some type of forced diaspora. I did an episode with Simon Mundy, who's a journalist for the Financial Times. I had met him in Korea and he took two years off and he visited 26 countries on six continents for a book entitled The Race for Tomorrow. He wanted to meet people and and talk with them. And He was in the Philippines when he met some people who were were living 
near the water and generations they'd been fishermen and lived by the water and the government just came in. He was there when one of their homes is destroyed and they said, we're going to move you to the mountains. Well, these aren't mountain people. That's not their culture. That's not, not what they know, but there's just parts of the world that are just going to disappear. And the refugee situation that we have uh, is just going to be enormous because how are we going to move these people, feed these people and how they can integrate into a very different culture. Oh, listen today, and the story I tell in sadness and tear Amy, you wrote a nice piece for the Oxford American, and you talked about the cyclone of Rye Cove, which is a ballad. Perhaps you can talk a little bit about that. I live near the Natural Tunnel State Park, which is just in Duffield, Virginia, near Rye Cove, Virginia. I'm here in Big Stone Gap, Virginia. And I had taken a group of teachers there for a riding retreat. And we were actually on a hayride through Rye Cove, which is just a beautiful area. And they stopped the hayride and there was a field in front of us. And Bill Kaywood, who the late Bill Kaywood, who was a park interpreter there and also a high school teacher, a local high school teacher, told us this story that I had never heard. I'd grown up my whole life in Lee County, Virginia, and never heard about the cyclone of Rye Cove. Never heard that this cyclone came through in May of 1929, and it completely demolished a, a two-room schoolhouse, which sat in the field that we were sitting in front of. Jane, had you heard about this? Had you ever heard about this? I had never heard about it until someone in one of my classes at the Appalachian Writers Workshop was doing a historical fiction piece, and it was based on that. So it killed the teacher. It killed like 12 students. And it was a rash of cyclones up and down the East Coast. It was That wasn't just the, the only one. But A.P. Carter of the Carter family, who lived nearby in Hilton's, Virginia, rushed to help with the bodies. And the, I mean, you have to remember in 1929, getting people on a train to the nearest hospital or, or the lack of cars, you know, trying to put people in these cars with these thin wheels and it was muddy. And so it was, it was chaos. They had to, when the school collapsed, the fire stove, everything erupted in fire. And so they had to have horses to pull the pieces apart so that they could get to the kids that were buried underneath. So he went and helped. And then later, the story goes that that night he went home and he wrote the lyrics to the Cyclone of Rye Cove. And, and that ballad that they wrote and recorded sort of took on a life of its own. But when I got interested in this, when I heard the story I, later on in a writing workshop, I, I wrote down my memories of the story and I, I wanted to know more. And so I found this wonderful thesis at East Tennessee State University that had been published in the 70s. And the writer had collected the oral histories of the survivors. And so it's just this rich document where the, the survivors are giving their accounts of and in dialect, she recorded them and wrote their narratives the way that they spoke. And it's just a cherished document in my mind. I'd love to, I'd love to actually publish it. They talked about the color of the sky and they talked about the sounds that they heard. They talked about the 
what the kids had to say about it. I mean, it was all these rich narrative accounts of the cyclone of Rye Cove. I just, this could go on and on, but I inherited a talking machine. I inherited a Victrola with all of these 75, these thick 75 records, the Carter family and Ralph Stanley and Doc Boggs and all of these early recording artists. And there were two copies of the cyclone of Rykova in that Victrola. And it had, they had worn out one and bought another one. So I just, it just all sort of came together and became this really interesting story about community and about how people come together this weather disaster that that passed out of the storytelling of generations because I'd never heard about it, but remains in this song. Thank you. That's a beautiful story, Amy. And I know at the end of your book, you have an essay by Krista Wilkinson, who's a well-known poet. And I'm hoping to interview Frank X. Walker, who's the former poet laureate of Kentucky around his poetry around York, who was the African-American and uh, indigenous person who had worked, who was the really the servant to William Clark and then was on the Lewis and Clark expedition. But of course, has been left out of the history and his poetry is beautiful. Imagining this, you know, imagining this, this life. Jane, would you like to read something for us as we end our conversation? Yes. One of my characters goes back to her old town, which is now just um, a grassy knoll, basically overlooking a lake. And she lived in this place as a child. She's going back for a nostalgic visit to this place that used to exist. A lone bronze marker revealed the spot's history as the former site of Eddyville, a thriving town settled near a series of bends in the Cumberland River, which snakes a course through the middle of the country from mountains to barrens to rolling hills. The plaque told the town's role in American history as an outpost on the western frontier, as an important junction during the Civil War as a commercial center and county seat. The tarnished words also described mid-century government projects for flood control, hydroelectric power, and tourism when the flowing river was dammed. The sign memorialized US presidents, vice presidents, and governors from Kentucky and Tennessee, but failed to mention the people who had lived in the town and had given up their homes as the giant lake rose. They had been told their sacrifice was for the public good. They were never told how much they would miss it or for how long. I want to thank both of you. I hope that we have brought a little attention to this beautiful part of our country. And I want to make certain that we're able to keep this culture. There's a wonderful word that Georgella Lyon created uh, another Kentucky writer and she has an essay in my book and it's called Voice Place. And I think it really sums up that connection that people have to a region and that connection people have to a place. When I was watching the footage of the flooding unfold and Jane, I watched that happen because I've been to Heinemann many, many years, many summers. This happened to be when I wasn't there just with horror watching that happen. I'm so glad you're okay. 
you know, I saw comments that people made, you know, why do people stay? Why do people stay there when that could happen? Why will why will people stay there? Why would, would they rebuild? And I think that's what's unique about Appalachia, particularly central Appalachia, is that people are rooted here. And that's part of what language does. It's their voice place. It's what nurtured them. It's what nurtures their spirit. And it's why so many people stay. And it's why so many people return. I thank both of you and your books are available through the University Press of Kentucky. And I I recommend Jane's novel. I think it's a very good read. Thank you very much. Thank you to both of you. Thank you so much. If you have enjoyed our conversation, please subscribe. You can connect with us through Elizabeth Howard at eh at elizabethhoward.com. You can find us on Spotify and on Apple, on Simplecast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Join us next time when we engage, explore, and ask questions.